The reading for today is 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17 to 3 to 13. That is on page 1187. Paul longing to see the Thessalonians. But brothers and sisters, when we are feigned by by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope or joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand in no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Antheans, We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker, in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way. As you well know, for this reason... When I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your fate. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Timothy's encouraging report. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us good news about your fate and love. He has told us that you have always pleasant memories, always have pleasant memories of us, and that you long to see us, just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we encourage about you because of, of your fate. For now, we really live. Since you are standing firm in the Lord, how can we thank God enough? For you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. Just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with his holy ones. Thanks be to our God. Hi guys, it's good to see you again. Um, if you haven't met me before, my name's uh, Micah and uh, it's a pleasure to be back with you this morning. Let's put this away. Let me start by asking you a question. Uh, what keeps you going in the Christian life. What helps you this morning to put one foot in front of the other, or even beyond that, to push ahead and even grow, even when things are difficult? And what about when things aren't just difficult, but when you trace that difficulty back to its origin, what about when the source of that difficulty is the very fact that you are a follower of Jesus? Maybe you're feeling it at work, where it just feels like there's this constant kind of pressure to conform or to go along with a particular narrative or way of looking at the world. Or maybe you're quite new to the Christian faith and perhaps you've found already that it's causing tension uh, that, that surprises you, tension between your close friends or your family 
or perhaps you've been a Christian for quite a while, and the choices that you've made, the sacrifices that you've made about how you live your life, who you date, how you spend your money, those are starting to feel pretty costly. And actually, as you think back through those choices and sacrifices, you're starting to wonder what you've got to show for it by this point. What's going to keep you going then? And perhaps, actually, it's simply the fact that you don't really know any other way to be. Or just the vague hope that maybe things are just going to get better soon if you keep doing the same thing. Or I think for many of us, um, from time to time, we start to wonder whether we're actually we're not able to carry on that much longer. And perhaps keeping going in the Christian life starts to feel like a bit of a losing battle. And the truth is, if this isn't you yet... If this is, isn't how you feel, it's still worth reflecting on it today because it one day will be. This is going to be all of our experiences. Each and every one of us is one day going to come face to face with the fact that the Christian faith and the Christian life is going to make our lives harder than they otherwise would have been. It's not going to make our lives easier. And the question is, when that happens, not if, but when, how are we going to keep going? How are we going to endure now, given the, the title of today's sermon, which, let's see if I can, uh, no, which is Gospel-Centered Endurance, um, and the title of our series, which is also Gospel-Centered Church, it might not surprise you that the answer that Paul gives us here is the gospel. It is the gospel that enables us to put one foot in front of the other in the midst of trials and difficulties. And it's the gospel that helps us to keep going in those times when the, the trials and difficulties that we face are a result of our being a Christian. In fact, it's especially for those times when um, our trials are a result of our Christian faith, our belonging to Jesus. Paul is writing to a church in the thick of their own suffering, in the midst of really serious persecution, and he's able to rejoice in how the church in Thessalonica is not only surviving, but it is thriving, even in their trials and suffering. And if we want to learn how to keep going when things are difficult, then there aren't many better people to listen to than this church. So here's what uh, I think we're going to do. I'm going to tell you up front why I think the Thessalonians are able to endure during suffering. And then we're going to look at the same thing from a number of different angles so that we can really get to grips with not only what it looked like for the Thessalonians then, but also what it can look like us for us today. So to keep going for Jesus, we need to rest in Jesus. This is what the Thessalonians show us. To keep going for Jesus, we need to rest and remain in Jesus. And this is especially true when we're thinking about enduring through hostility, the hostility that's aimed at our Christian faith and our Christian life. This kind of endurance is only possible insofar as the gospel gets to work in us and as we rest in it. The kind of endurance that we see on display here in the Thessalonian church is the endurance that is, sustains a church through hostility by the gospel. And incidentally, also, we're going to see the same motivating factor is at work in Paul, not just the church, but Paul as well. And it helps him to welcome sacrifice in his own life for the sake of the Thessalonians. The gospel is powerful. It's powerful at the level of the church, but it's also powerful at the level of the individual to be sustained. 
But what is interesting is that in this passage, you might have noticed that Paul doesn't kind of begin by describing this kind of state of settled peace and tranquility about how the, um, the Thessalonians are doing. In fact, he begins by letting us in on the deep concern and distress that he's feeling about how they're coping. Um, you might, if you've been here a few weeks, you might have noticed that I chose to start our Bible reading a little bit early in chapter 2. And that's not because I, um, George didn't cover everything uh, last week. He did a great job. I just think that this, this passage kind of bleeds into ours. And it shows how Paul's concern as a gospel-centered leader, like George was showing us last week, bleeds into um, his endurance and to, and to the church's endurance. Remember that Paul's time with the church in Thessalonica was cut short because of persecution. He moved from Thessalonica to a place called Berea. It's about 50 miles away, um, 50 miles away from Thessalonica. And things seemed to be going great there until kind of the same people who were causing trouble for Paul, firstly, get wind of where he is and they kind of instigate this persecution again in Berea. And things get so bad that his friends ship him off nearly 300 miles away to Athens, where he's writing. And it's worth saying that Paul isn't running scared here. If he was, he'd definitely, he'd, he'd definitely have stopped preaching the gospel quite so boldly, wouldn't he? He wouldn't have continued in this ministry. But as it is, whenever his ministry becomes untenable in one position, in one location, it's Paul's location that changes, not his ministry. And the story of Paul's ministry is, in, is really exciting. It's really incredible. You can read it for yourself in Acts 17. And it, it, it reads like a real adventure story. But what I find really fascinating is that from Paul's perspective in this letter, in 1 Thessalonians, the hardest part of that whole ordeal for Paul wasn't the conflict. It wasn't like the days on the road or the kind of the weather on the way or the, the kind of the ship problems. It wasn't the persecution or the criticism or the relentless mockery that he had to endure. Now, according to 2 verse 17, the thing that weighs most heavily on Paul's mind is the fact that his time with this newly planted church in Thessalonica was cut short. Notice who Paul described as being orphaned in verse 17 there? Not the church he planted, like his spiritual children. He was orphaned. He's left with this intense longing to see them again and has made every effort, it says, to do so. But Satan has obstructed him from getting there. It's Satan that's at work here by trying to undermine this baby church. See, if, if I were Paul, I would be pretty quick to see the actions of Satan insofar as they affect me and my ministry. Maybe when I have to flee a city under the threat of imprisonment or death, that's when I'd see the hand of Satan at work. But Paul sees Satan at work straight away as he threatens the church that Paul loves. And Paul is initially so filled with concern and with worry for the Thessalonian church, that even though he's only just received Timothy, this right-hand man in the ministry, back to himself, he'd rather go without. He'd rather go without not only a friend, but also a partner in the ministry that he's, he's engaged in. He'd rather go without Timothy than leave the Thessalonians at risk. And it's important to spot here as well, isn't it, that just the kind of person that Paul sends, the kind of person that Timothy is. The Thessalonian church is a brand new church. It might, might, might even be like a year old at the time of writing. And they found themselves unexpectedly leaderless in the midst of a deeply hostile culture. What person, what kind of person do you think Paul needs to send to the Thessalonians 
maybe like a, a spiritual drill sergeant or like a slick apologist who's going to kind of answer all the questions that they're facing or a kind of cultural thought leader who's going to make them seem a bit more like palatable and, um, um, and appropriate for their culture. Now, in, in 3 verse 2, Paul sends Timothy, his co-worker, in, in spreading the gospel of Christ. There is a real sense, once again, that as far as Paul is concerned, the Thessalonian church's greatest need is for their very own evangelist. Once again, the gospel isn't just for out there, where all the unbelievers are, or where the people haven't heard the gospel. Now, according to Paul, when times are hard for the church, they don't just need to grit their teeth, and they don't simply need to retreat from whatever's causing them difficulty. Now, when times are tough, the church needs evangelizing. The church needs the gospel. It is the gospel that is going to help the church to endure persecution and trials and difficulty of all kind. It is the gospel that is going to protect the church from being unsettled, Paul says, by the trials they face, and will instead keep them settled at peace or at rest, even in the eye of the storm. Paul is worried, according to verses 2 and 3, that the persecution this church is facing is serious enough that they're at risk of being unsettled in the faith, he says. And that word unsettled, it kind of means like being shaken or rattled. And he's worried enough that he sent Timothy back to encourage them and to strengthen them in their faith. He does this apparently at great cost to himself and to his ministry. Sending Timothy effectively leaves him on his own in Athens. And yet he apparently couldn't stand not knowing how they were doing so much that he'd rather be alone himself than for the Thessalonians to be at risk. But then Timothy returns to Paul with this news. Not only are they still standing as a church, but despite Satan's best attempts, they aren't just surviving. They are thriving. And Timothy arrives with this news that the church are holding fast to the gospel. But what is fascinating is the fruit that Paul identifies as, as evidence for this. If you, if you look at verse 6, you might recognize maybe some of the same fruit that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Timothy is returned, and he's brought with him good news about their faith and love. Remember the faith, the hope, the love trio that we saw in kind of chapter 1? Well, Paul is still pointing to it as evidence that the gospel is at work in the church. We get faith and love here in verse 6, and we'll get to, we'll get to hope in a little bit, because uh, that's a little bit different. But it's worth saying at the outset, these aren't just kind of like generic descriptions of, of like vague, nice character traits. Because we can describe a lot of people as being faithful or loving or hopeful people. But Paul uses these words in this chapter in a way that cannot be understood uh, in general. Okay? For Paul, faith, hope, and love are rooted in, built on our relationship with Jesus. And therefore, they are evidence that his gospel are profoundly at work in the church. So for Paul, faith is faith in Jesus' identity. Love is love for Jesus' people. And hope is hope in Jesus' return. Uh, perhaps it's unsurprising that faith is featured here. Uh, it's, it's quite a Christian-y word, isn't it? It's one where probably a lot of us are quite familiar with and we're all, we all know that we're kind of meant to be a people of faith, whatever that means. 
But so often when people do talk about faith, they're kind of talking about it as if it's like shutting and blocking your eyes to reality and choosing to imagine something better and nicer instead. And if that's what faith is, and let's face it, it is not going to be helpful in times of difficulty. In fact, the more pressing our troubles are, the more useless that kind of faith is going to get. But from the way that Paul describes in, in these verses, it seems to be the total opposite of that. In 3 verse 2, Paul sends Timothy to strengthen them and encourage them in their faith in case their trials had unsettled them. In verse 5, Paul repeats that Timothy had visited to find out about their faith. Why? Well, Paul tells us, I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. It seems to be that in Paul's mind, a faithless church is a church where Satan has made inroads. But on the other hand, faith is the very instrument that God has given the church to resist Satan. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul describes faith as being like a shield that can extinguish the fiery darts fired by Satan himself. The faith that the Bible talks about doesn't get weaker when it comes into contact with reality. That's where it shines. Faith only gets more powerful, more effective, when it comes face-to-face with the trials and hostility that the church faces. I think this has really two important effects that we do really well to notice. Firstly, I think it's helpful to see that for Paul, persecution isn't primarily a battle between the church and the world, where kind of like the world is this aggressor, and the church's job is to kind of stand there and, you know, at best maybe turn the other cheek. That is happening, and the Bible does talk about it like that, but for Paul... I think in this, in his mind, the persecutions and trials that the church faces are a spiritual battle between Jesus and his people on one side and Satan and his pawns on the other. This isn't a battle either where the church is on the defensive. And Jesus says it is the church that is storming the gates of hell. And those gates cannot and will not withstand the power of the gospel. But secondly, while it's important to understand what faith isn't, i.e. like this holy kind of hoping for the best or whatever, uh, if we're going to really resist Satan by our faith, if we're going to do that successfully, we, know, we need to know what faith is. And Paul doesn't leave us in any doubt here either. In fact, Paul seems determined that the, Th- the Thessalonians get this right. Paul makes it clear in this passage, and he makes it clear that he's already made it clear to the Thessalonians that persecution is inevitable. He sent Timothy so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. He carries on in verse 4. In fact, when we were with you, we kept, i.e. repeatedly, telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. It is a universal feature of Paul's writing in the Bible that what it means to follow a crucified Savior is exactly what it sounds like. And he doesn't want them to feel missold. Uh, we don't have to look far for those countless kind of horror stories of so-called pastors who tell people to turn to Jesus in exchange for a life of comfort and wealth when what Jesus promises is a cross. Can we really be surprised when people turn their back on Christianity if that is what they've been told is, it is? But Paul will not fail the church in this way. He will not let them down. 
He warns them of the hardship they're going to face, and he even models what it looks like to step into that hardship. Faith in Jesus is faith in a crucified Savior. And following Jesus is following a crucified Savior. But that doesn't mean that faith is just this kind of Bear grills sort of spirituality, like for people who really like, like wild camping and cold baked beans or something. Um, no, faith is taking hold of Jesus' work for us. Faith, according to the Bible, is looking at who Jesus is and all that he has done, all that he has suffered for us, and receiving it. Faith is saying that not only is Jesus' death mine, but so is his life, his new eternal life, so is his spotless record, so is his relationship with his father and now our father. And can I just say that? I know I've been talking a lot at the moment to people who would consider themselves followers of Jesus, people who have already put their faith in them. But if you're here and that's not you, you wouldn't consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus. If you're here and you've not maybe made your mind up about him yet, can I, can I gently suggest to you that this matters even more? This is even more crucial for you. Because if trials and difficulty are inevitable, then it is essential, isn't it, that we have an understanding of the world that takes the suffering and pain that we experience seriously, that doesn't ignore it, like the make-believe faith but also that offers some kind of hope in the midst of it. Can I put it to you that there is no God like Jesus in this regard? There is no God other than Jesus who has plumbed the depths of unjust suffering, who has not just tasted death, he has drank it to his dregs, but also who, according to the Bible, has brought about a new life, an eternal, abundant life that is on offer to anybody who throws their lot in with him. And that is available today to anybody who wants to put their faith in him. He doesn't offer an easy life. He doesn't offer a fix to all our problems in the here and now. Paul has been quite clear on that, hasn't he? But he does assure us of a future that will outweigh and outshine all of the trials, all of the indignities, all of the difficulties that we might face in this life. If you want to know more about that, can I encourage you maybe to join us on Wednesday or Thursday for our final Rewriting Your Story event as well? Just a gentle plug. Uh, uh, we're going to be looking at that subject in a lot more detail, so please do uh, come along if this, is, um, if this is pertinent to you. But can I also hold him out to you today as our best hope for making sense out of life, especially when things get difficult, especially when life is hard? So that's um, faith in Jesus' identity. The next one is love for Jesus' people. One of, you know, one of the hallmarks of gospel-centered endurance is faith, but it's constantly mentioned alongside this faith is love. And it's not just mentioned in the letter, is it? The letter is saturated with Paul's love for this church. It's beautiful. He loves the, Th the Thessalonian church so much that he can't stand for them to be left at risk. He chooses to go without, to, to, to take great cost on himself for their benefit. And the church also overflows in their love and their affection for Paul, even though his, his ministry just looks quite weak and small from the outside. You know, in the, in the eyes of the world, Paul is quite a loser, isn't he? But in the eyes of the Thessalonians, he's, he's their loser. He's, you know, he, they love him, and they're affectionate towards him. They long to be reunited with Paul, and, to, and they keep him close in, in, to their hearts. 
This is the kind of relationship they have with each other. It is beautiful. And Paul's prayer in verse 12 asks the Lord directly to make their love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as his does for them. Paul is describing this this kind of fountain, this cascade of love that begins with God and fills each individual believer to the point of overflowing with love, not just for each other in the church, but outwardly to the rest of the world. Could you imagine a more beautiful community than that? This has always been the mark of a spiritually healthy church. Throughout its history, this has always been the way that the church has been called to look to a watching and hostile world. Here's an example from an emperor who lived thousands of years ago. His name was Julian, uh, famously described as Julian the Apostate. Um, And he writes this about them. It's worth saying he hated Christianity and he hated Christians. Okay, but listen to what he can't help but admit about them. He says, it is disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar and the impious Galileans, that's Christians, support our poor in addition to their own. Everyone is able to see that our co-religionists, the people who believe in like the Greek gods and the, the Roman deities, are in want of aid from us. Can you see what's incensed him here? These impious Galileans, these unholy Jesus people, are making him look bad. They're making his religion look bad. They're showing it up. It's bad enough that they're so effective at loving each other, but now they're loving his people as well. Where is this going to end? The, th- the thing that makes this possible, though, isn't that the church is just filled with great people. I mean, I'm, we, I'm, you are all lovely, but it's not that you're like better than the rest of the world and you've decided to kind of get together and form this sort of like kindness club that, um, that's going to kind of go out and do good around the world. No, the thing that makes this at all possible is the relationship between Jesus and his church and the fact that it is so close that if you have any love for Jesus, any at all, that love must extend to his people. Elsewhere, Paul says that the idea that we could love Jesus but not his church is a bit like saying to somebody that you love their head, but you could take or leave the rest of their body. It is nonsense, according to Paul. Now, the one, no wonder the Thessalonians are filled with this love for Paul and for the wider world. No wonder Paul himself is able to step into such a sacrifice for this church. It shouldn't come as a surprise, really, should it? That in the last chapter, Paul has described his own ministry like that of a nursing mother. I mean, can anybody think of a better example of somebody who sacrifices out of love than the mother of a newborn? Somebody who gives over their physical energy, their, their emotional energy, even their own body, um, for the sake of someone who is physically incapable of giving anything back to them. And, and they don't do this because this baby is going to, like, pay up in, in, in years to come. Now, the reward, the payout, is the, the baby. <laughs> There's no external reward to what, to what the mother is giving up uh, for. Paul puts it this way, actually, in the end of chapter 2. What is, what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Uh, think about it maybe in this way. Um, I want you to imagine, um, difficult for, for many of us, including myself, but imagine you are living in the 70s in the States, and you've just landed an interview for this kind of dream job 
but in a very small and little-known company. And the job is yours, if you'll have it. But they're really clear at the start. The pay is not good, OK? The hour's going to be long, and you're going to get home on a Friday night more tired than you ever imagined possible. But they promise you that this company is going places, OK? And you have the opportunity to get in on the, the ground floor, so to speak, and come along with them. And, and the other thing to mention is that the interviewer, his name is Steve, OK? His name is Steve Jobs, right? Um, I should, should include that information, shouldn't I? Because it matters, right? This, it might still be a lot more than you might be willing to take on, and that's OK. But let me ask you a question. If you knew the direction a company like Apple was heading in, if you knew the kind of household name that this business was going to be in a few short years, what would be the thing that tempts you to say yes at that interview? Because as nice as a big future salary might be, I reckon the thing that's going to get people to say yes is if they believe in the thing that this company is going to be, and if they get a chance to be involved in making it what it is and bringing that about. You see, for Paul, this is exactly how he sees his role with this baby church. He doesn't see them as necessary kind of but difficult work to bump him up, I don't know, the queue in heaven. Um, no, the church has brought... It's brought to maturity, perfected in eternity. That is Paul's reward. They are his joy and his crown. For Paul, the church isn't a means to an end. They are the reward in themselves. No wonder he loves them and he sacrifices them, sacrifices for them so much. So, so far, we've seen Paul celebrating the faith and the love that are on display. But what about hope? You see, what's interesting to me is that even though all three can be equally misunderstood, I think this is the one that's most overlooked, isn't it? In fact, actually, probably we're all quite guilty of this, where we think about hopeful people. They're nice, aren't they? But they're not very useful. <laughs> like, surely, like, actually, in a, in, a, in a difficult meeting, what you want is a gritty realist, don't you? <laughs> like, <laughs> and anyway, isn't, isn't, isn't what suffering and trials do is, like, kill hope? Isn't that, isn't that the thing? Isn't suffering this, like, great hope killer? Or maybe worse, what if, like, hope is actually a thing that can be weaponized? Something that can be used to keep people doing things in bad situations or in bad places. I'm reminded of this quote from uh, Terry Pratchett. Who, he writes, uh, it's hope that's important. It's a big part of belief, hope. You give people jam today and they'll just sit around and eat jam. But jam tomorrow, that, that will keep them going forever. See, Paul sees hope in a different way, though. He seems to give hope its special place in this chapter. And I think that's because maybe this is what the Thessalonian church really needs to hear. This is what they need to hear most clearly. He's going to go into much more detail later on in, in, in this book. Um, but it's, it's worth knowing that even though the church is doing really well, there is still lots for them to take hold of in the gospel. We'll see in a couple of weeks that Paul goes into this detail about the source of the Thessalonians' hope, but he just gives this kind of preview here about what they're looking forward to. The first thing we all see is that it isn't just a state of mind. Hope isn't just a cheerful disposition. That's eventually maybe going to get ground down. or It's not a tool to be used to keep people under control. Now for Paul, hope is having such a certainty about the future that it sustains you in the present. So that suffering isn't the hope killer. Hope is the fuel for endurance. And we don't simply endure 
because we're stoic or for endurance's sake. We, we endure for the sake of something that lies ahead. And that leads us to the second kind of sneak preview in how Paul wants the, the church to understand hope. Hope isn't the pie-in-the-sky sort of thing that we imagine. Hope is rooted in the reality of a person. Hope is rooted in Jesus, in his present rule over the world, in his future return. You see, Paul closes this chapter with a prayer that is saturated in the, in the, the certainty of the power of Jesus, both present and future. All of the present pain and the persecution that Paul and the Thessalonians face is endurable because Jesus isn't just a theory. He is not just an abstract set of life principles, but is a real person who Paul commends as having conquered death and has promised that whatever Satan throws at the church today will be minuscule compared with the glorious future that is the inheritance of the church. The church is Jesus' treasure before it is Paul's or anybody else's. Jesus will not forget about his treasure. Those final words in, in, in our chapter, in chapter three, holy ones, uh, about Jesus arriving with his holy ones, those are the words that Paul is using to describe you, God's people. Jesus' return is the completion of all his promises for the Thessalonians and for us today. So as I close in a second, I'm just going to ask you the same question I asked at the beginning. What's going to keep you going in the Christian life? What's going to keep the gate church going as the call to endure becomes sharper? When we feel like we can't keep going or when the pressure uh, to conform or to retreat feels like too much. Because here's where where we can't look. We're we're not going to be able to look to strength from within. Okay? Because that's tempting, isn't it? And we all want to see ourselves as strong people who can withstand anything. But you and I are a limited people. As strong or weak as we are, we have limited resources. And if we rely on ourselves, we will run out. We will run dry. But if Paul is right, then Jesus' resources are not limited. Whatever we have to endure, whatever path we're called to walk along, Jesus has walked it first. Once again, a church that endures by the power of the gospel isn't necessarily one that looks outwardly impressive or is just on this kind of growth path to infinity. It isn't necessarily one which looks like cool or innovative. It is one that is so rooted in the good news of Jesus that no matter what opposes it, no matter what Satan throws at it, it cannot help but bear the hallmarks of the gospel. Faith in Jesus' identity, love for his people, and hope for his return. Uh, Shall I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you uh, that the reality of of our hope is rooted in Jesus, in the one who has conquered death, in the one who brings new life and who shares it with us this morning. Father, I pray that as we sing together, as we worship you together, we would do that confident in the fact that the best is, is, is yet to come and it is, it is brought about by Jesus and it has been secured already in him. Please, Father, as we, as, we, as we face challenges today and as we face challenges in the future, remind us of the source of our hope and cause us to put, put our faith and our, our whole lives in on him. 
calls us to overflow with love for one another and for the rest of the world as we experience his tender love towards us. In his name we pray. Amen.